0: You are listening to the Breakfasts podcast for the week 30th of July to the 3rd of August. It was a significant week uh, for many reasons, but mostly because Jez was away for some of it. So we had Matt Stewart filling in. Jez was here in a couple of days. Yeah, and Matt one was popping day. in and out. Popping in and out. What so a he, job he did. He did a great job. You're going to hear his voice um, throughout the next couple of segments. Uh, we did kick off the week with an interview with Jill Stark about her book Happy Never After, why the happiness fairy tale is driving us mad. It was a really interesting chat. Uh, then we had a bit of a chat with Matt about problematic 90s sitcoms, about how some of the some of our favourite shows from the 90s haven't aged particularly well.
1: Not so well, no.
0: Uh, and Jez popped in on Thursday – was very good of her.
1: Yeah. It's nice <laughs> of her to show herself.
0: I uh, told us about uh, her getting forced into being a comedian in a place she didn't expect to have to be one.
1: Yes, and then she went off to the Sunday Island. Yes, damn you. <laughs> uh We had our bug man Simon Hinkley come in to tell us about the predictably disgusting Bond <laughs> uh, It's Melbourne International Film Festival, so we spoke to Deborah Granick about her film Leave No Trace. And then Matt Stewart brought it all home. By telling us a story about oh. strange goings on in the town of Brighton, you have to
0: hear you have to <laughs> hear the story to believe it. I still don't believe it.
2: You're listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from Three Triple R.
1: You're tuned to Triple R with Jeff, Sarah, and Matt filling in for Geraldine. Happy Never After Why the Happiness Fairy Tale is Driving Us Mad and How I Flipped the Switch is a new book out through Scribe. Its author is the journalist Jill Stuck. She's joining us now. Welcome to Breakfasters.
3: Good morning. Thanks
1: for having me. Thanks for coming in. You begin this book by discussing how in 2014. Your life seemed to be going very well. You'd had a fulfilling job. You just had a very well-received book out. You had a series of happy relationships. But then something happened to you that changed everything. What was that something?
3: Well, I got everything I ever wanted. And then it sort of turned out that that wasn't the answer that I was looking for, which isn't really what we're taught through, whether it's through Hollywood or advertising or watching The Bachelor. (laughs) We're we're taught that um, the end point is, is the whole I guess it's the destination and that's what we're always sort of striving towards, whether it's finding the partner or getting the job or uh, realising a dream as it was for me, um, publishing my first book and it becoming quite successful. And for me, I thought that was going to be my happy ever after. And it turned out that underneath all of that, I think a lot of people could probably relate to this, that when I got all of those things, there was still a little voice in my head saying, hold on a minute, you're still... Not quite enough um, and I think that's that's very much the sort of consumerist world we live in and uh, I talk about in the book the fairy tale filter of social media where we sort of look at everyone's perfectly curated lives and behind all of that there's often another story that you don't see which is what this book is trying to explore
1: Your last book that you just mentioned High Sobriety was about spending a year without drinking In That's
3: where it all went wrong Well that's
1: what I was going to ask because it's sort of obvious linkage between the two isn't it? To to what extent do you think now looking back on it that your relationship with alcohol was maybe connected to a broader anxiety that you face up to in this book
3: So I think that's what I look at in this book. I don't think i was quite ready to look at that in the first book obviously the for anyone who's read high sobriety it's it's quite unflinching i do look at my own drinking in quite um quite minute detail but i don't think i really looked at what was underneath it and i think for a lot of people alcohol is the most convenient and legal painkiller that we have um mm. for whether it's physical pain but often for emotional pain i think that's what what we tend to particularly if you've got a very anxious brain um that first glass of wine can be very freeing but I describe in this book um, what I've come to know as anxiety, which is the hangover you get the day after. If you've got anxiety, hangovers are just a nightmare because the way that the alcohol reacts in your body, it actually makes things a, a lot worse um, but at the time when you're drinking it has the opposite effect. So it's that real love-hate relationship where you're, you're using a substance to kind of calm an anxious mind but the next day the, the rebound effects are twice as bad. So in the period in this book when you You've kind of got all the successes in the world. You talk about
0: uh, increasingly needing gratification from other people, so that might be through checking your Twitter feed or looking at likes on Instagrams or reading reviews of your book. I think that is a common feeling that mm. everyone feels, whether they're successful or not. We kind of begin to we're beginning to read our self worth through how other people view us. Increasingly, could you talk a little yeah, bit about that?
3: So I felt very much that I realised that the. The image I had of myself was very externalised and it was, I sort of describe it as like looking at myself through a carnival hall of mirrors where everything was very distorted. It was based on what other people thought of me. And so my self-worth was completely grounded on this um, vision that had been curated for me, I guess, by my own social media, but also by the reviews I was getting. And that's really, you know, there's only so far that can take you. If underneath it all, you're not particularly happy in yourself or you don't really um believe in your self-worth and that's what i had to really get into and i think so much of that is based on what we're taught as kids as well like we're not really taught when i grew up in the self-esteem movement it was all you know you're special you can do anything you want <laughs> i think it, cli- it explains why we see people on the voice who have no talent and that sort of thing where you know no one's ever told them <laughs> that there may be it's okay to not be the best at everything and it's okay to fail so i was taught that um you know this kind of self-esteem juggernaut was all about feeling good all the time and when you don't feel that and when you sort of internally think well I've got all of these things that should make me happy but I still feel a bit lost I described it as um a sort of ravenous hunger where I felt this emptiness. I had all of these external things, all the things that were meant to prop me up and make me happy, but underneath it all, it was an anchorless kind of free-falling happy that wasn't based on anything. Mm. So you really have to go deep dive and go, well, what is it that makes me a whole person? It's really not all of these external things. It's sort of relying on yourself to, to, feel, to feel grounded and to feel connected to yourself, which is a quite a difficult thing to do when we live in this externalised world.
1: You mentioned in the past that students kids were taught self-esteem but in the book you discuss visiting Girton Grammar in Bendigo where students are taught something quite different they're schooled in emotional intelligence tell us about that
3: yeah that's that's actually really heartening I think it's a, a sign of of um you know a positive change on that on that front um so these this is a school in Bendigo and it's actually been taught in a lot of schools not just private schools but um where they're teaching kids emotional intelligence so rather than teaching them that they are sort of Unbreakable miracles you <laughs> know they're <laughs> teaching them that it's normal to feel sadness and frustration and disappointment, and it's normal to fail um, and that it's it's not about like if you fall down you can get back up again, and teaching them the difference the very nuanced differences between say sadness and depression or anger and assertiveness and how they and giving them the space to actually verbalize those emotions, which I think a lot of um a lot of us who have young people in our lives are sometimes scared to let kids talk about how they feel because if they say they don't feel well or they don't feel good about themselves and we want to fix that but i think actually giving kids the space to talk about their emotions and to realize that what they're feeling this full gamut of the human condition is actually normal and um, whereas i grew up sort of being told that well you've got everything you need you, you should be fine and to stop worrying about the day that will never happen, which for someone as a chronically anxious child was just like telling me, just, you know, tell me the sky wasn't blue. Like it's just, it was completely counter to, to how I was feeling inside. So giving kids that space to talk about it and, you know, they... they the teachers in that school were saying that it not only helps um the, the kids feel more emotionally resilient but it actually impl- improved um academic performance and schoolyard bullying and all those kind of things because kids were feeling supported in a way that if you just tell them to sort of suck it up or even as the generation before us um, were told to you know children should be seen and not heard like that hasn't worked particularly well so it's kind of a balance between letting like giving kids the skills to be who they are and to be supported without sort of completely pumping up their tyres to the point where they, we have these emotionally fragile <laughs> narcissists who, who sort of fall over at the first line of any um, adversity. But
0: what do you do, though, when those kids then go out into the world which is set up to tell them that happiness is the end goal to everything in life? Because I feel like right now... If you go through a breakup within a couple of weeks, if you haven't recovered from that, if you're still grieving or you're sad, the assumption is that you're now depressed and that maybe you need to be on medication. Like increasingly everything tells us, whether it's self-help books or Oprah, that we have to be happy at at all Mm. times in every moment in our lives. And it's not okay to be sad for six months because someone has passed away or a relationship has broken up. You know, yeah, how do those kids kind of then step out into this world, which isn't really designed for that?
3: Well, I think we as the adults have to have to model that for them and and show them that it's okay to cry when you feel sad. And whether, you, particularly for men, you know, I think it's a very um, it's very difficult for men who are told that boys don't cry and that kind of thing. But I, I think this is what I was trying to do with this book is sort of bust that myth and say, look, this is actually really normal. We all feel this way, but we don't talk about it because we're expected to be happy all the time. Now, as you just said. The, the idea you know the, the actual system is set up to pathologize any kind of sadness or frustration or or even grief so you know the DSM which is the the psychiatrist Bible that they use to diagnose um, mental health conditions it used to be that um, there was an exclusion bere- a bereavement exclusion which meant if you had lost a loved one you couldn't be diagnosed with depression for several months because obviously grieving is a natural. Um, part of the human condition now if after two weeks just two weeks you can be diagnosed with clinical depression if you are still feeling sad now that's an absurdity because anyone who's lost a loved one knows that there is no pill that can fix the the ache that you have from losing someone so we need to obviously people who fall into terrible trouble after months and months of of debilitating debilitating um, symptoms may need some medication but for the most part we don't need medication for a breakup or our grief we need to let ourselves feel those things and we need to tell our kids that they're allowed to feel those things too mm. so i think that's that's the culture that we inhabit where there's the quick fix kind of solution is sold to us on in every level even the way that our psychology system is set up you you get 10 sessions subsidized with medicare and after that you're kind of cut off like there's no other <laughs> area of healthcare where you'd say i'm sorry your cancer's not better and i we're not going to be giving you any more chemo you know that's that's the system that we live in. I think that's what I really want to challenge: is that we need to stop looking for the magic pill to make us happy.
2: So, what, what should we be saying to the the kids if they say they're sad? You just say, "Yeah, yeah, that's going to happen." Yeah, and, well, and just, you just acknowledge
3: it and listen to them and, and ask them, "How does that make you feel? Like, what? what tell us about it." Not, well, not, you know, I think there's a real tendency when we we ask people, "Are you okay?" we've learned to do that but if the answer is no it's sort of like oh god I don't know what to do with that and we really need to be better at that um and I'm not a parent but so I'm not going to tell people how they should (laughs) parent their children but I I think just based on what I would have liked to hear as a as a child and my mum is sitting out there in the studio next door (laughs) over from Scotland so I don't want to say too many um things they did they did a great job but they they were they did what they could in a culture that told them, oh, we just, it's all a bit awkward when your kids are telling you they actually feel quite sad and depressed. Um, my parents were often like, oh, don't worry about that, just don't worry. And and to have that kind of to sense of dismissiveness can really start to sow the seeds of there is something really wrong with me. I'm really abnormal. Whereas you know, my my father had a had a breakdown at the age of forty when I was um, just the year before I was born and he basically got no counselling. He was just whacked onto this med- medication. And it was only when I got really sick that he told me all about this and I just thought, how sad is that, that here is a man who had some really deep emotional pain and was given no avenue to talk about it, was just given medication. And, you know, 35 years later when um, he's talking to me about it, and you could see the pain was still so raw because he'd never really dealt with it. So I think if you tell kids from an early age, like, just listen to them, don't be don't be scared of... You know, I think there's this feeling that if we talk to people about their um, really dark thoughts, that they'll act on it or that some of it will make it worse. That's actually the opposite of what we now know to be true. And we're seeing that with Beyond Blue, who've just launched a campaign so um, about talking about suicide, that if you actually talk to someone about their deepest, darkest fears, you're not going to push them over the edge. You might actually save their
1: life. Mm. There's a lot more we could talk about, but we're running out of time. The book is Happy Never After, Why the Happiness Fairy Tale is Driving Us Mad and How I Flipped the Switch. It's out now through Scribe. We've been talking to its author, Jill Stark. Thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for having me.
4: You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR 102.7 in
2: Melbourne. And uh, we were talking earlier about Sorry, we're on triple R. Does Is you know you know,
0: It's all right.
2: Oh, I'm such a... Bl- it's amateur hour here. It, it, it's, it's all
0: right. If people don't know they're on triple R. I reckon yeah. Jez would have nailed attention.
2: that. I mean, I'm so sorry everyone missing Jez right now. She'll be back tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> earlier we were talking about Friends and how it's it's um, sort of with hindsight has been seen as being a bit problematic. Yes. I'd, oh,
0: Friends, the TV show. Friends, yes. the TV yeah, show. Yeah, yeah. Not, the concept. not, just not all friends. of our friends. Well, <laughs> well they to are a be a fair, most of them, too. They are problematic.
2: I found a, like, I searched Friends problematic and a lot of results came up. <laughs> <laughs> I found this one article on Thought Catalog. It says five reasons why Friends is actually a super problematic show. And, not uh, just
1: problematic, super problematic. Yes, the worst problematic of all.
2: Includes <laughs> Cl- reasons like Susan and Carol's marriage would not be utilised as a punchline to shame Ross and threaten his masculinity. That's, That's
0: true. Oh. That daddy, daddy, I forgot about that.
2: Yeah, his ex-wife.
0: The whole thing is like, ha-ha. Married a woman. And yeah.
2: It's a running joke. To yeah,
0: you're less of a man.
2: Uh, it also says the men of the friendship group would stop spending every waking hour defending their masculinity. Which, which they, they do, do. They
0: do, and they always have like um, arm wrestling competitions <laughs> yeah. and yeah.
2: And uh, then it sort of says uh, Rachel's career advancement wouldn't be the unjumpable hurdle. In an otherwise solid relationship with Ross. Apparently, Ross, it was a oh, big he issue. He got very threatened. Did he? He did. She got a, I can't a promotion. You're making
0: this up, Jeff. I can't tell.
2: He did get very threatened. She got a promotion. And he got threatened by that, and she had to spend too much time at work.
0: Oh my gosh, I yeah, can't so remember
1: this. Decided he was, she was having an affair with a boss.
0: Oh, classic. That's what women do when they spend longer yeah. at work.
2: And it, and it mentions like, uh, Monica's extreme weight loss. That was often used as a. Uh, a punchline when they do flashbacks to when she was. Because that's why they put her in a fat, fat suit. Fat suit. Oh, my God, if you realize age badly, how do you I feel like the, badly, feel like the fat
1: suit would not be a thing anymore. I
2: know. So, yeah, it's been making me think, like, what at the that time. What was that Gwyneth Paltrow movie with uh, the fat that's suit, right? Shallow How. Shallow How. All of this just so,
0: seems. Uh, anyway.
1: So, it's a different time.
0: Yeah. It was a different
2: time. But, I mean, at the time, all of that, I don't think there was a lot of controversy about it at the time. Maybe I wasn't no, I wasn't don't hanging think there around. Was.
0: No I, no, I don't think there
2: was. So, what What do you Do you think there's? it's going to be the same now in 20 years' time? Current shows we're going to look back on Ooh. and see in that way?
0: Maybe. I'm, so, Toady's turn as a lawyer on Neighbours might be problematic in a few years because lawyers will have been shamed. Yeah. I don't know why. <laughs> or, that's. or maybe
2: maybe uh, in 20 years, people are like, how did he get a law degree in, uh, in a season and a half? <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's confusing. How did four really attractive women marry Toadie and somehow being married to him it killed them?
2: Well, I think, I think you've just <laughs> or told are. them. Okay, mad. That. Are, are you toad shaming right now? So <laughs> Maybe I am. Sorry, I take it back. I, I love Toadie. <laughs> that may not be appropriate uh, in the future. I think there are obvious ones toad probably, shaming. like, um, like uh, that one that forces people to get married. Is
0: that what happens? Like, oh, oh, my God. Like, How is that? Actually, that is a very good point. The, the What's it called? Married at first sight. Married at
1: first sight, yeah, which I've never seen, but I feel like I've seen the ads and I've kind of. <laughs>
0: they don't really get married, though, do they? Don't yeah, they, they just, do.
2: No. It's, they I don't? Think, no. Okay. Uh, no. I, I, not <laughs> it's, it's, what it's
0: not about. a legal marriage.
2: Yeah. A sham
0: marriage. They have a
2: fake little fake wedding ceremony. How's this outrage culture? It, oh, I don't know. Jeff hasn't even seen it. <laughs> <He's laughs> outrage! Yeah, I know. He's a classic. <laughs> Jeff. No, no, I don't understand
1: it. How does the
0: show even work if they don't really get married? Yeah. What's the- they sign? I think they sign like a commitment certificate or something, and then they
1: have a fake wedding ceremony. because yeah, I thought from party. watching that was the whole thing is big deal, and nah. they were going to
2: marry someone they've never met I think before. Think that might be illegal. Yeah, they need. You can't just <laughs> marry someone you've that just turns met. Out. You've, yeah, I think you've got to have no, known Regist- them for a while. I think and- you got to register a license? That's you know, like to like you have to register oh, to that's say true. that you a get married. Mm-hmm. You would know you're yes. married. Yes, you're a married man, Jeff. What a <laughs> way to find out! <laughs> you didn't know. I had no idea. <laughs> that's a sham. You've been to keeping be that. You've been keeping that <laughs> under you. What you, you <laughs> what's the shit? What's the, what's in it? <laughs> Who's winning out of this? Normally, a sham marriage. Not apparently.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we we're just talking about Toadfish and what happened to all
2: of his marriages. Anyway, let's just keep on. Moving. Yes. But you, yeah, do you think there? I've been looking up the. I had oh, a look at uh, the top rating shows from last night. Oh. Um, and just to think, what well, which ones are these might be problematic Ooh, in the okay. future. But um, the top, <laughs> so, I think this is pretty normal, but it's weird to me. The top four rating shows were Seven News. Uh, seven news today tonight. That's one and two. Both. Three is nine news, hugely. and four is nine news six thirty. All hugely, hugely problematic. problematic.
0: Yeah. All of them, <laughs> particularly after that
2: merger. Oh, yes. Uh, then <laughs> a MasterChef.
0: Master Chef. what? Oh, what could be problematic about Master? You know, I was watching Master Chef the other day, and I thought it is one of the few reality TV shows in Australia where you have um, more of a representation of race. You know how all those building shows is just like white. Couples, non like white couples everywhere, and that's all. Some, you say, some
2: have brown hair, though. Some have blonde hair. Yeah, well, so yeah, that's, about,
0: that's about it. Some have tattoos, some don't. But it, I was thinking, MasterChef kind of has a really good representation because of
1: cooking. Sort of encourages people to
0: because it's based on talent and not producers picking out. Yeah, I guess, right. like you know, white couples. that will appeal to middle Australia. I yep. assume
1: so. All right, MasterChef, not problem. Not problematic. I think Tick. that, oh, MasterChef. then
0: again, George Columbarez. Oh, oh, people sorry. are a bit on the nose.
1: <laughs> Very problematic. Problematic. <laughs> problematic.
2: I think I think um, with cooking shows they like uh, they like personal stories as well, and with different cuisines from different yes. backgrounds, yeah, maybe change
1: into it. So potentially, so what was the rating on that? Semi
2: problematic. Uh, I'll give that a semi. Semi, uh, but I wonder, like, if food in itself will change in the next twenty years. Like, if certain foods will no longer be seen as acceptable Oh yes. Oh yeah. When we all move towards being a vegan society, we're all
1: eating soylent green. Food substitute.
2: Soylent Green. Apparently, I just heard there's a company that's called called a new product, a new soy food, vegan food, Soylent. Okay. Seems like Soylent Green is that we're going to live on. It's It's human. It's people. (laughs) It's people.
1: people. Oh. It's a it's a punchline from an old science fiction movie where people are starving and they're eating this food and they discover Soylent Green is people. Ah. That would make for an interesting cooking show.
2: Problematic. All people. Yeah, that <laughs> does feel a little bit Lucy problematic. get eaten and served up to the others. I don't know. Maybe that's just that preparing for, for the apocalypse. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, what else we got? You got house rules, which is I think I think that's probably what you're picturing when you're talking about. Yeah, like middle white Australia. Okay, problematic. Uh, that's problematic. I think that the representation is probably going to be. Seen.
1: And also in the future, no one's going to have a house anyway. <laughs> we, none of us to afford houses. <laughs> <It'll> be, <laughs> yeah, it's so
0: problematic already.
1: That's right. It'll be tent rules.
0: Also, I find in those shows they tend to wheel out a person who's had some really terrible personal tragedy. Like horrific things happen to them and then go, now you've got a." fix this person's house. Oh. I feel like that's going to be problematic in a few years too like maybe Those redemption hinging, narratives. Yeah, hinging your 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 I don't know, your ability to build off how much you care for a person's tragedy is there's something about that that's not quite right. Yeah, that's a bit weird. Yeah. Yeah. There was one the other night and the guy passed away and they're like we have to make this the best build ever because you know we have to do, give honor to this man and I thought that's a bit
1: intense. Yes. You know? Like you bugger up your renovation, that means. Yeah. Put a
0: you, lot of pressure on the decor. You the wrong colour of the couch. <laughs> That's what I mean. Yeah. Anyway.
2: That's problematic. What else? What else? Australian Ninja Warrior. Ooh, that's a like a fitness challenge show, is I the think. the Ninja <laughs> reference a little bit, public. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. Yeah, I'm not sure because that is it. That's a martial art. It is a martial, are, they, are they actually
0: doing? Are they, are they doing ninjas? ninjas? I don't
2: think I they, I they don't, actually, do ninjas run a around a, a course and go on a like a on monkey bars and stuff? Is, is that it fit shaming? Maybe in the future. Maybe.
1: Ah. Oh, I see what you did
2: there. Yeah. yeah. What about all of us who can't who can ninja challenges? Ninjas. That's so. TV what is going to eventually have to be things that everyone can do. <laughs> That's just an ordinary challenge. We just walk around the course. That's good TV. <laughs> Watching Jeff walk around a course. <laughs> Jeff's done another pretty good time. With his muscles. Yeah. Good laugh Jeff.
0: Good
2: laugh. I'd watch that. Yeah, certainly. Ah, oh, that'll do. All right. <laughs> This is a podcast from 3 rrr 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio.
5: You're listening to Breakfast with <laughs> Sarah Jeff and Geraldine. Uh, so I, um, I, I have been away for the last couple of days. Unfortunately, um, my uncle died, which is very sad, and I went to his funeral. But the good thing about it was that it was a great time to catch up with family. We had a lovely farewell for him, and it was um, yeah, it was great to have the. the, the whole, my, my sister came over from Perth, and it's not often that the, the whole, whole family's family. yeah oh, is nice. together that. in in the same room. So on Monday, though. Uh, we drove to to Aubrey um, and spent the spent the night there. Now my, my parents live in a like a semi retirement village type scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, they've got their own you know apartment there, but they have like there's a community hall and they have um, happy hour drinks at like from five o'clock. Oh,
1: sounds like my place.
5: Oh man, it is so good. <laughs> Like, uh, I don't – yeah, you go there and it's happy hour prices. It means it's $1 that
1: you – Oh, that is a very happy hour. $1? Is it
5: 1982? Yes. Yes, it is. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But it's great. But there's – you know, there's a few – and everyone just sits around this one big table and you – so we – Kath and I made it there just in time for, for happy $1 hour. drinks. Yeah, <laughs> walked in. And like my, because my brother in law, he goes, Oh, I'll, I'll get this round. And he comes back and he goes, That is the best price <laughs> drink. I've got a hot for $10. I've got everybody's drinks. <laughs> for
1: $10. Do you have to belong to the community to go to this bar? Can uh, people just wander off the street for the happy well, hour. I think
5: you might have to be invited, but <laughs> next time you're in Albury, I'll get, I'll make sure <laughs> Mum and Dad send you get out on the list. Just for the one dollar happy yeah, hour. Yeah. yeah, come on in. Uh, mind you, when I rocked up though, uh, you know, I said hello to everybody and, and sat down. I, I'd, I'd been to happy hour before, so I'd met some people before, and were sitting there having a lovely time. And then the bartender comes over. And he's like, oh, you're the comedian. Come on, get up and tell no! some... No! no
0: You've actually said to me before your most hated thing is when people say, all right, get up and tell a joke.
5: Oh, I cannot tell you how. I can't believe people <laughs> do that. That's the thing to do. Uh, they just... I don't, I don't know what it is. They just think, yeah, why wouldn't you just get up well, but and... But no-one else...
0: People don't walk the... up to Jeff and
5: go, you're a communist, get up on your soapbox. <laughs> Well,
1: that's <laughs> funny you should say that. But they, do, do they do it to musicians? You're a musician, come and sing us a song? I mean, like, sh- Well, uh, maybe. maybe.
5: Yeah, maybe if they had, you know, a guitar sitting around, they'd go, come on. Or, I reckon that musicians would get it. If there was a piano in the room, they'd go, come on, give us a little... Tinkle.
3: Tinkle
1: yeah, the eye.
5: Tinkle the eye for us. Come on, have a crack.
1: So what did you do? Well,
5: I... Did my show? No. No. Oh, my
1: God.
5: <laughs> what did you say? Oh, I, you know, I said, oh, ah, no, that's all right. You know, I'm just, you know, and thankfully, other people. I'm just people here were, with my
0: family for a funeral. Yeah. I don't really want
5: to get up and do <laughs> my <laughs> spot of stand up. Yeah. But it was, you know, everyone was like, oh, no, I don't worry. You know, thankfully, conversation would keep going. But he did not oh, let no. up. At
0: all. Oh, my God. He goes, just tell us one joke. Oh my God. Come on, we
5: just want one joke. You're like, you're just one, Jack. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know if none of – no, it, it's fine. How about – watch watch me on YouTube. I'll set up the – we can all just watch it on the telly And he goes, no, 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 I'll get the microphone for you. I'll get the microphone. That's what you need. You need the microphone. I'll get the microphone for oh. you. And oh, my and just God. Get and then I'm like, I'll, I'll have a drink. And so thankfully he had to go back to the bar and, you know, pour people's drinks. And then, you know, so we're sitting there having a drink. And then five minutes later, he rocks back up and hands me a microphone. Get the F out. (laughs) Oh, my God. And I'm, like, looking at Mum going, make this stop. (laughs) And she's going, no, come on, up you get it. And I was just like, oh, I cannot handle it. And my sisters are losing it. They're like, this is the funniest thing ever. It actually is. If you're a sibling of you right now,
1: this is excellent. (laughs) (laughs) Were were, were, were they cheering him on? (laughs) She'd love to do it.
5: A bit of that, and then oh. they just couldn't believe it was happening. And then I was like, "Oh, I, there is just no way I'm I'm getting out of this." Do
1: you think he knew your stuff, or did he just heard that you were a comedian? No,
5: dad had just said that. Oh, my daughter's a comedian, and he went right. Well, this is happening. <laughs> like, it, oh like, oh my god, en- entertainment time for happy hour. So, uh, and oh, he kept on saying, "I just want one joke. I just want one joke." And I went, "Well, I can tell a joke," like, and I told a joke. Yeah. And they... Like
0: just a knock-knock joke or one of your bits? Did you no, just a... like a
5: knock-knock joke, yeah. like a classic yeah. joke. With the... Why did the
0: chicken cross the road?
5: Yeah, but it was that, you know, a bit of a longer story one. You know yeah. the, my favourite joke with the lettuce leaf? And I
0: know you've told us before but I've forgotten it. Yeah. Do us a joke.
5: It's the joke. He has a
0: microphone. <laughs>
5: <laughs> a guy went to um, get his prostate checked and, he'd been, and the doctor was looking um inside and he said oh excuse me mate do you realize you've got half a lettuce leaf hanging out of your bum <laughs> and and the guy turned around and went oh mate that's just the tip of the iceberg <laughs>
2: Classic. That is a very good joke. I
5: that. knew it was a crowd pleaser. It was a bit of, oh, that's a bit rude. Oh, oh, it's not that bad. Ticked all the boxes. Yeah, and, uh, you know, many of them loved it. I think there was a few turning to each other going, what did she say? <laughs> 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 I don't
1: care. Difficult How? crowd at the retirement I,
5: home. I, yeah, I know I can't
0: deal with those situations. I'm, I think I'm like you in that I will always give in if someone says... Oh, you should do this. And if I say no, there is you a should point, do this I go, Okay, because I can't yeah, be bothered with this situation. Because there is
5: a point where you realise that, Oh, they're not joking. Yeah. They really believe that this is fine for this to happen. This is a
1: thing that yeah. And maybe even yeah. they're doing your favour.
5: Yeah, yeah. And you go, it's either I'm gonna do it or there's I'm gonna be I'm gonna be seen as being really rude and it's gonna get awkward. For yes. everybody oh, well, I'll yeah. just make it awkward for I'm myself I'm going to be yelling And then I'm just going to be Yeah, a horrible person A horrible person. person I can get on the microphone and tell a joke And then so when I did it They went, oh You know, and they went No, one more And I said, no, no, no G- Give it to dad And so I gave the microphone oh, to what? my dad And made him sing a song <laughs> What said, did he no, think? Let just let uh, dad sing Daisy no Daisy oh. Daisy And then he uh. forgot the words <laughs> <laughs> But everyone else joined in. But it was funny that apparently there were some others that, Because Dad can sing as as well as I can, Um, which is not not that good. Um, So (laughs) there was other people going, I'll give the microphone back to the girl. Give it back to the
1: girl. Uh, I feel like you should um, track that guy down somewhere in Albury on his day off, you know, when he's out with his family. He was working, though. Well, no, no, that's what I mean. You find him on his day off and come up to him and say, you're a barman. Pour,
5: yes. us, some oh, yes. Pour yes. us some drinks.
1: Pour us some drinks for everyone.
5: Pour us a,
0: drink. Pour us a drink. Give us a drink. Oh, mate. Here's a dollar. <laughs> Fill up my wine glass. Now I'm not as jealous <laughs> of your day off. Yeah.
2: You're listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3RRR. R.
1: Breakfast is where well. it's time to talk. Feature creatures with the one and only Simon Hinkley from the museum. How are you going, Simon? I'm good, thanks, Jeff. How are you? Good. Every time you come in, we wonder what disgusting creature has he uncovered for us this time. I. Uh, Think that you've excelled yourself. Well,
4: yeah. And I maybe <laughs> should be picking some some cuter um, things to really make people like insects because this isn't ah, gonna help. But are there
0: cute insects? There are there know. are lots
4: and lots of cute All insects. Right. Um, and this I, I sort of I was thinking about this because we had one sent into the museum recently for identification. And so the life cycle is really amazing. But just um, as a heads up to people, it's not really it's not the best breakfast. to you talk? And also, there are things on the internet that you can't unsee. If you, there are a lot of graphic videos and images online about botflies. Can vouch for that. Yeah, sorry, Sarah. So, <laughs> so, um, so just yeah, if you do, if you're squeamish, maybe don't Google by image because they've, they've turned my stomach. So yeah, they're not, um, <laughs> they're not that <laughs> That's pleasant. quite a warning. Um, so yeah, botflies. So um, the the species that we're going to talk about is uh, Dermatobia hominis, which occurs in South and Central America. It is a species, the, the adult fly looks a little bit, maybe a bit like a bumblebee, so fairly nondescript, but sort of, well, cute, if you it's like. even Sarah. nice looking. Yeah, yeah, oh. yeah. So it's the larval stage, which is a, a bit on the gruesome side, but what's really so fascinating... It's
0: the term larval stage. <laughs> well, I, I, I use
4: larva instead of maggot, because I thought larva oh. was better than maggot, but yeah, so... It is. Yeah, okay, <laughs> so time. we'll stick with larva. <laughs> Um, yeah. So the larval stage is really interesting because what the female botfly does is she doesn't actually lay her eggs directly on the host and she will go for things like rabbits, monkeys, primates, uh, people. She actually grabs a intermediate host. So she'll grab like a, catch a tick or a mosquito or something like that and lay her, her eggs on the underside of this carrier. So when that then lands on a person or climbs onto a person if you're a tick for a blood, fe- uh, blood meal, the heat from the, the host animal causes those eggs to hatch the, the larvae inside then drop onto the the person, if you like, and they'll either enter via the injury site that the mosquito or the tick has made or they might access via a hair follicle or something like that. So they're obviously very small at this stage. They then burrow down into the uh, the subcutaneous tissue and they start to feed on exudates from the tissue. What's really interesting is um, they need to be able to breathe. So the, the larvae have spiracles in their rear end, if you like, to sort of exchange... Uh, oxygen to be able to breathe. And so what happens is if you go, and I should point out this is a very, very rare occurrence. I don't want to sort of affect tourism in South America. Um, for example, I think we've had six cases at the museum in the last six years. So it's not not a really common thing. Sure. But people will come back from holidays. So I should say the larvae is in there. It goes through a number of changes. Uh, each each uh, form is a different shape. And to make them a little bit more impressive or gross, if you like, they're surrounded by rings of backward pointing little black hooks. So they're sort of like holed in. Oh. So it's quite an impressive little critter. By the time it's ready to, to pupate, it's about two centimetres long. So it's a reasonable size. It's quite, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's reasonable and it's chunky and with the, the sort of rings of black hooks. Black Books, it's quite an impressive um, creature. They don't, so you don't actually get flies flying out of you. So when it's ready to pupate, they will actually crawl out of you and drop to the ground and and pupate. But what's interesting is um, you c- might come back from holidays, um, and so you've got like <laughs> Sarah, well, Sarah, sorry, I'm Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> now you're doing well. I expected you to well, sort of walk before <laughs> this. Um, so you get like a bit of a, a raised sort of like it doesn't look that bad, but you've got a little sort of, um, a little opening so the thing can can breathe through and you come back and you go, oh, you go to the doctor, you've got, oh, I've got a weird boil, I've got sort of a weird pimple thing. And this is where I got a bit grossed out. There's a lot of videos online of people removing their own um, botfly larvae. So it's, it's, um, they don't transmit any diseases, which is a good thing. But I'm pretty sure when I was a kid, I read a book, um, there was a plane crash in somewhere in South America. This could have been fiction, I could have made this up, but um, the survivor had to walk through... You know, like a jungle environment, and basically, the thing that stuck in my mind was this person having these basically getting, I guess, a bit fly-blown. So,
1: yes, um, yeah. it's funny you should say that because last year at the Melbourne Film Festival, we saw that, um, Daniel Radcliffe Harry Potter yes. film where what? he's in the jungle surviving, and he has one, doesn't he?
0: i oh. actually totally forgotten about that. Yeah, he does, he gets lost in the Amazon, yeah, and he gets one,
1: yeah. It's quite gross.
4: Yeah, There's also there's a similar species in Africa called the tumbu fly. So we do have bot flies in Australia but not the ones that affect people. So unfortunately ours are, well, unfortunately for us, there's an introduced species that goes for sheep. Um, and what's interesting with the sheep one is uh, the female actually will lay them directly onto the sheep. They don't use that intermediate host and they'll go for the nose. So, um, oh. yeah, so they'll yeah. crawl remember up.
0: remember sheep becoming
4: fly balloons. Yeah. yeah, so you can get... Well, if unfortunately for the sheep, you can get various types of you can get fly blown at the back end, mm. um, and you can also get maggots laid in your nose. And when they're ready to be picked, they crawl out. Or sometimes the, the sheep will sneeze them out, which is a bit gross. The idea of sort of sneezing and those coming out. But what's interesting about the sheep is there is some uh, there is some suggestion that they're aware of the risk posed by flies. So they make quite a loud buzzing sound, mm. and there's some uh, reports that the sheep will actually put their head down towards the ground or they'll actually move away or they might even get in a circle and sort of like drop their head so they make their nose less available. So there is some, you know, like that dumb as a sheep thing, there is uh, an ability for sheep to actually go, I don't particularly want that around my nose area because there's some sort of knowledge that that can be a bad thing because if you get a really bad infestation of them or you're already sort of compromising your health, it's not great for the sheep. Simon, I have many questions about botflies. Go for
1: it. (laughs) Okay, so firstly, how do they catch the initial thing that they lay their um, pupae on, like that would seem a difficult thing to catch a tick and lay some eggs on it.
4: Well, I was wondering if you're going to go to all the trouble of catching intermediate hosts, why not just go and lay, do your own thing? So I was, that was a question that occurred to me. (laughs) I like that subcontracting, yeah. Um, So look, it might just be um, that... If you catch a number of insects and lay your eggs on them, you increase your chance of... So, for example, when the adults emerge, they're not going to live for a long time because they don't have feeding mouth parts. So there's not a long time for them to... Yeah, so um, again, that idea of... uh, Most of the life cycle is spent in the larval stage. So when they emerge, no feeding, so it's just... No mouth. No. Well, They
1: really are creatures from a nightmare, aren't they? Yeah,
4: they they are. (laughs) Although they do get to spend their life in a warm body, just like with liquids and stuff. So I guess that's, that's the upside for them. <laughs> for um, them yes. Yeah, not for, not for us. But yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, and it could be that, as I was saying, because they don't feed, they've got a short lifespan as an adult. So they lay their eggs on a variety of things and it's then their job to transmit the eggs. Catching a tick is easy because they're pretty slow and just sort of hanging out on the vegetation, waiting for things to climb onto. Um, and I guess if you're in the, in the jungle, there's mosquitoes by the billion. So I guess you just grab whatever's going past, lay your eggs, grab the next one, lay your eggs. Yeah.
1: Okay, and my other question is, if you have a bot fly inside you, obviously Mm. it's gross and disgusting, Mm. does it do you any damage? It's not going to
4: kill you, is it? No, no, so they don't transmit any diseases. Uh, The only sort of risk you're at is, apart from the gross factor, uh, that what you don't want to do is try and pull it out yourself, which is... Uh, there's, a, there's a really good report and it was actually a paper that talked about the use of two wooden spatulas like one on each side to sort of like pop them out but it just made it sound like the worst pimple ever that oh, sort of thing yep. yeah so there are what you wanna do is you wanna cover the spiracle that it's breath the hole in, in the skin that it's breathing through. So you can put like petroleum jelly mm-hmm. or you put something over the hole that then starts to suffocate the lava so it sort of like comes up for air and that's when you can try and remove it. I'd be going to a doctor and yeah. having it done under a local, but I guess if you were in the bush, if you were in that the characters in that film, you might have to do your own. So you basically cover the hole to smother it and then as it starts to come out for air you try and slowly remove it, which is the risk with those backwards pointing hooks yeah. that it tries to hold in. And the risk I guess is if you pull it apart and leave part in you, then you risk an infection. Yeah. Like that's the main risk. Like leeches, yeah?
1: Yeah. No, yeah, although leeches, leeches
4: are on the outside. Leeches don't go in. Yeah, they don't yeah, go in. But, but you like do a run, tick.
1: You can pull it. Yeah, like a tick. You can like pull a tick, yeah, exactly. Off,
4: if you pull the body off and leave the head inside, that's that's a risk. And also I guess leeches, anything that causes a break in the skin runs the risk of an infection. But, yeah, yeah. I guess the uh, the botflies, you can do it yourself if you're that sort of person, but I'd be I'd be going for the doctor.
1: All right, before we let you go, can you tell us anything positive about these animals?
4: I was thinking about that on the way here. I was because I, I anticipated that question and I didn't have long enough in the tram. Um, so, look, they're food for a range of things like they're okay. a good-sized insect, so as in, well, the adult and the larval stage. So, I guess when they drop out to the to the forest floor to pupate, they're food for a whole range of things if they don't get themselves uh, undercover very quickly. But apart from them being food, who knows what what part they play in? Um, they might have. They're not going to be pollinators as such, but um, who knows? what role they play that we don't know about, but all I can go with is their food for something at this point. There They're all part of God's great plan. It, that's the part so of the cycle of life. Yes. Hey, there, are there any events
0: coming up at the museum? Thank you,
4: Sarah. That's there right. is a, an event tomorrow night uh, nocturnal at the museum. It's a Harlem theme, and I think the band is... Uh, anyway, I've forgotten the band, sorry, but if you go to the museum's oh, website yeah. for Nocturnal, Rekium, Rekium.
0: I did know this as well, and now it's because we've heard the yes. part's been playing. Yeah. yeah.
4: So, anyway, if you go to the museum website or just search for Nocturnal Melbourne Museum, you'll find uh, the, event on to- the event on tomorrow night. There's a number of bands and talks and dancing and a whole range of things. So uh, DJs is
0: but- a dance-off.
4: Dance-off, yes. And a gumbo kitchen. Yes. Hmm. But no um. botflies. No bot flies. No, but come and talk to me about bot flies. Yeah.
1: Thank you very much, Simon Thank you from the Old Museum. We'll see you again soon.
4: You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne.
1: You're tuned to Breakfasters here on AAA with Jeff and Sarah and Geraldine here in spirit. Yes. Even <laughs> if she goes off to the wit Sundays. Not that we're at all jealous. The Melbourne International Film Festival has its big opening night shindig on tonight. Over the next weeks, you can see an amazing array of films, including one called Leave No Trace, which is screening tomorrow night at the Comedy Theatre and Sunday night at the Forum. To tell us all about it, we're joined by its director, Deborah Granick. Welcome to Breakfasters. Thank you. Uh, I've read this film described in all kinds of ways as being about a father-daughter relationship, as a film about trauma, as a movie about homelessness. How would you describe it?
6: Well, I guess all of the above, but um, (laughs) the story starts with a mystery. You you realise that you're watching two people, a father and daughter, living undetected in a municipal park on the outskirts of Portland, Oregon, and I think... Quickly, you're wondering, why are they there? How are they living? Uh, You know, maybe at first blush, you think it may be a camping trip. Soon you realize that they, it's very organized and they're doing it over a long period of time. What are they seeking? Why are they living that way? So I think the story is, uh, sets off a set of questions about life choices and how do we think our own thoughts? What happens if you feel like you want to extricate yourself from the mainstream? You know, how would you even do that?
1: uh it's a film based on a novel my abandonment by peter rock films are visual novels are not as a director how do you go about making one into the other do you begin with the character the plot the dialogue or is it more about the general feel of the novel
6: again you're hitting all the marks there. <laughs> that, that, that's that's I, I, you know the, the all of the above because for, for real all those things has to be in place to to begin to imagine it as an interesting filmed you know filmed entertainment. So the uh, setting matters hugely because that's what you're going to be photographing in addition, you know, then the characters, why are why are you even curious about them? Why do you care about them? And how will you make that vivid for people viewing it? So down that list each of those things have to really grab you to be motivated and
0: turned on to making the adaptation. Uh, when the young woman who is one of the leads in this, Thomas and McKenzie, she has had some brilliant reviews from this already, from what's come out. You kind of famously launched Jennifer Lawrence's career with your last film, Winter's Bone. And I know that gets mentioned with you all the time, but it seems like this is kind of going to be a big jumping off point for Thomas and how did you come to find her? What process did you go through? Well, Tom is someone who's looking for work and, and you know, um,
6: you know, was re- willing to read scripts and yeah. receive uh, information about pr- productions around the world. And so she had heard of this project and read the script very carefully, read the novel, and then submitted self taped an audition, yeah,
0: right. which she
6: sent, you know, Great Distance. And I, the casting directors and I, we, you know, it was sort of in the mix of a bunch of auditions, you know, just on a grid where you can click different auditions and see who's submitted. And this one really took
0: me by surprise. Was and it an instant thing? Did you go, that's it, or is it a little bit more complex than that?
6: Well, it was odd because I, I could, I, I did think, oh, you know, there's something a little bit distilled and, you know, a little different here. I, I, I didn't know she was Kiwi, so I, then quickly had to figure out. I said, you know, what where is this from, and who is she, and, um, because I couldn't place what coast she was from. You know, yeah. turns out it wasn't. Even on the right, con- on the ra- on the same continent, you know, it was a different yeah. coast altogether. Um, and so, yeah, then a conversation ensued in which we spoke by Skype, and Tom was extremely forthcoming about her imaginings about the novel, and was so was very articulate about things and, and conveyed immediately her willingness to collaborate and her interest in the, in collaborating. So it wasn't just this jaded response of like, "Oh, well, th- you know, this could be a, a gig or whatever." Yeah. It was much more like. <laughs> I've imagined this character, Yeah,
0: let's talk about it. And that must be a dream, I guess, as a filmmaker, to be working with an actor like that. Oh, oh yes, that is, that is top of the line
1: dream. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the American Wilderness is very beautiful and I feel like the more we destroy the wilderness around us, the more we become kind of attached to it. When you're making a film like this about homelessness and dealing with some quite grim themes, do you have to, guard against the tendency to romanticize that kind of outsider, off the grid, back to nature. It seems like such a theme in American culture, this romanticism of going to live in the wilderness and it's going to be wonderful and fantastic. Was that something you were conscious of?
6: Yes, because that, that romanticism, when you really break it down, has to stop basically at the working class, right? Because if you don't own a parcel to do that with, or if you don't have the funds in which to somehow do this big foray, I mean, it is romantic, of course, to um, stick to a conviction or to have thoughts that that you protect and you seek out, you try with discipline to live by them. But if you don't have a piece of property that you call your own, where are you going to actually do that living? It would have to be undetected or clandestine. And so at some point that becomes very uncomfortable. I just mean that the...
1: You're trespassing.
6: You're trespassing, exactly, yeah. and, and anyone can shut you down, and people then feel like they need to maybe intervene or help you or punish you. So um, it's, just, it's interesting that, that the, rom- the romantic notion, there's a huge chasm between that and trying to actually enact that. But you're absolutely right that in literature, of course, there would be this romanticization, and I think just in this film it was shown that their life was arduous. It was not, you know, no one's swinging in a hammock.
1: Yeah, uh, sort of you know, a right, right. And it's a huckleberry
6: fiend, and it's also it's very it's quite inclement. So therefore, you know you you feel the moisture, and it is clear that uh, that it's colder. You know, it's not it's not freezing. It's just a, it's it's not it's not a walk in the park. in a a summertime vision, you know.
1: Well, that brings me to something else I wanted to ask you about. I saw that you're filming a documentary based on Barbara Ironike's Nickel and Dime, which is an amazing book about precisely that, I guess, the difficulty of living a low-income life in America. Can you tell us where you're at with that project?
6: Yeah, well, that's certainly not romanticised, No,
1: it's such a brutal book.
6: Someone said to me, uh, oh, Deborah, you know, I think... I don't know how they thought this, but they said, you know you might be suited to do a horror film at some point, point. and I said, Oh, I am <laughs> it's called <Nickelodeon. laughs> you know it's it because uh that talk about also you know where where to be right when you're unhoused or when you can no longer afford the mortgage or the rent or where you've been foreclosed upon or the financial cri- crisis so called crisis actually was up in your face, you know it was actually on your neck uh that's a really arduous situation there. Again, you know, you're, it's you're urban, urban dwelling, unhoused is definitely not romantic in anybody's sense of what it means to feel good. Um, but what the only hedge of protection that these characters have is is their resolve, their survival desires, their uh, their humor. Mm-hmm. You know, so um, they're definitely, you know. You, the film is looking for the nobility, or or not looking, they've got it. It's trying to depict the noble act of keeping on on when the obstacles are just so formidable.
0: Uh, There's been a bit of a gap between your last film, Winter's Bone, and this one coming out. I've I've read interviews in which you've said you were actually working on projects but they didn't kind of come to fruition. It's really hard for lay people like us to, to imagine what goes on I suppose in Hollywood to get a film up, and when you, you when your last film has been won all these awards, nominated for Academy Awards, to me it's extraordinarily surprising that you couldn't just click your fingers and you know get the next film that you wanted. What kind of obstacles do you face as as a um, filmmaker trying to get a film made in Hollywood? Well, first of all, it's just so, so
6: crucial to say that I've never set foot in Hollywood. I oh, work. sorry, yeah, no, of no, <laughs> no, that's okay. It's just it's just a clarification, not yeah. nothing, nothing antagonistic. I, I work on the East Coast, which. You know is outside of the industry uh yeah, yeah. there's television what not, but I just mean that independent filmmaking has its you know kind of footholds in different parts of the country, but it's rarely in the west coast industry be- i mean they're they're completely separate yeah right. just on the scale of what you 're doing, but mostly thematically you know i I work in social realism and that's not that's you know not never really been since since in earlier decades in the states that's not really been an area of thematic interest for West coast filmmaking and things are bigger that you say, you know, they and they, and they've pyramidized, you know, there's yeah. a lot more blockbuster activity, a lot more Marvel activity. And so I think the reason I have to be on another coast from some of that is because I actually think the stories I see in the, in the, in the life experiences I'm exposed to paying rent at the end of the month is a big deal, but you don't have superpowers to help you. You got to do it on your own.
5: Yeah.
6: And it's hard one, and it's 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 you know takes a lot of a per, for a person to do that. But they don't have a special divine intervention that can sort of just wipe away. I don't even know if sometimes superheroes have even daily needs, or I, <laughs> I, I, I just I was just thinking about that. I didn't even know about like whether they have uh, sometimes health issues or you know dietary. They <laughs> go to the toilet. Yeah, yeah. Lactose intolerant. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> exactly. So, um, so yeah. So that. So in terms of getting the projects made. Um, it's the subject matters that take a minute to get, you know, to garner support for or to do them in an alternative way, and sometimes some of the things have been better explored as documentaries, so that's also an odd thing. That doesn't follow the pattern of sort of making commercial films, Um, but you know, it's a calling, what can I say? It may not be like the the most happy-go-lucky calling but it it is <laughs> it is one that you know I've had a respect because yeah. it called on me really I don't mean to sound like religious about it. I just mean like you know somehow you can't retrain everything about yourself if those are the stories you gravitate towards you sort of have to go with it.
0: I guess since your last film as well then the, the me too thing has happened and I guess that was really focused on Hollywood as a as a filmmaker working outside of that bubble, have you seen any real world well, what's effects so,
6: on what you do? What's so cool is when you're not in the industry, you don't have to say "me too," which yeah. you, you can say "times up," which yeah, is yeah. so much more potent. You know, <laughs> totally. it's like grow some, You know, it's like yeah. Uh, so um, yeah, so we 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 practice times up because it's times up on so much. It's not you know just me me too got a little reductive because it, it really focused a lot on the sexualization. Yeah. So if you haven't worked in the industry as much you know you, that's not necessarily the number one issue uh it's much more topics race class gender uh, ho- holy it's yeah it's, it's more what happens on screen right it's uh because really it, you know it's it's about sort of what kind of stories are up there mm. how women are involved in them whether they're depicted as having you know more Importance than just how they look. Those are the things. So that Me Too can't necessarily tackle that, but Time's Up certainly is going to just keep pushing at that, pushing and pushing and just saying culture can't change unless stale things get out of the way.
1: Mm. Uh, your movies all seem to have a strong soundtrack. Do you have a musical background yourself or has that been something that's been particularly important to your style of filmmaking?
6: I don't have a musical background, but of course I'm very turned on by... Regional things. I love to hear how people make their music in different places in the world. On my own continent, I've had to be really have my eyes open to that and be appreciative because that's a good thing. You know, when people are still making music, something good's still happening. And um, I really enjoyed this collaboration over the years with Dick and Hinchcliffe. He's out of London, and he um, people back in the day he was involved with the Tindersticks, and he and partners. He and sort of his posse, but really Dickon in, in particular, started working in these kind of minimalistic scores for other european directors and i I was so excited I was like ooh what 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 is what are you doing over there where you're not editor- editorializing with your score you know and it was a really fortuitous connection and i i really and enjoyed that he also loves to pick up an instrument he's very accomplished he's multi instrument and um But he likes to pick up like a new instrument. So when he actually worked with me on the film that was shot in the Ozarks, Winter's Bone... He, he dealt with the banjo for the first time.
1: Jeez. <laughs> so jealous of people like that. Uh, you're going to be in conversation at the Wheeler Centre on Sunday talking to the filmmaker Miranda Nation. Um, Leave No Traces screening twice, once at the Comedy Theatre and once at the Forum. Have you had a chance to look at the festival program? Is there anything that you're really looking forward to? Oh, it's
6: too much. To I, My <laughs> circles are on every page. And, and then today when I was having one of my unbelievable... Melbourne, you know, heroin coffees, you know. (laughs) Um, I saw this other page I hadn't even seen. I was like, oh, no. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's just, it's really extensive, and it's, there are quite a few things I've circled. um, Stuff, especially that I won't get to see normally, you know, that only a festival can give you access to things from other countries that aren't getting distribution necessarily in the English-speaking world. Um, So I don't have the names in front of me, but... My circling has been copious. (laughs) (laughs)
1: All right. The International Film, Melbourne International Film Festival is starting tonight. You can jump on the website and find the screening times for Leave No Trace. We've been talking to its director, Deborah Granick. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you so much. You're in Triple R.
4: You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3 Triple R, 102.7 in Melbourne.
1: So, tune to Breakfast is here on Triple R with Jeff, Sarah, and Matt filling in for Geraldine. And today, our Friday <coughs> Funny Bugger is Matt.
0: Hey, <laughs> surprise. This is the slackest thing we've ever done.
2: Uh, you could be our Funny Bugger as well. Oh, it feels good. Good. It feels, it feels really good. Do you
0: feel is a different vibe stepping into the Funny Bugger corner?
2: Yeah, yeah, I know. I've, I had to go through a process there in the last couple of minutes. I feel you should, you're sitting in the
1: wrong seat and you should be in that seat rather than the one you're sitting in. Well, people does, that, can't. does that make you feel better? It does make me feel
0: better. Oh, much I know. I could, that was a good microphone swing without too much noise.
2: <laughs> oh, sorry, Sarah. <laughs> I, your words have been ringing in my ears. It was the first thing as she introduced herself to me, Uh said, and just be careful of those microphone noises, please. I said, y- yes, yes, Sarah.
0: <laughs> I actually let you make a few noises before I said it. You did. You were yeah. very
2: generous. Thanks. Um but yeah, I have I've gone through some soul searching since and I think I'm I'm better for Thank it. Thank you. I'm, I think you are too. I've yeah. got an oil can on me at all times. <laughs> 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 I I was thinking recently I mean anyway, I'm gonna not I was about to um strip back why I'm talking about something, but it doesn't matter. Anyway, so I love going up to this country town, Bright. It's a, my favourite place to holiday. You get, I love been, Bright. Bright, it's Bright. beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful Bright. Very cold. High country. It is cold, but it's also hot depending on the weather. Um, <laughs> the mysteries of climate. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I was thinking about this one time. Probably the weirdest experience I've had in Bright, right? It's something I've done so many times before. I went up to the Alpine pub, had was drinking beers on a Friday night. Oh. Having a great time. Met a few local... Guys, the pub was closing, and we're like, Oh, what, what do you do after the, um, the pub closes? And they're like, Oh, we normally just grab a slab and go down and, and drink by the river. I'm like, That sounds great. <laughs> this, I love really, Bright. That
1: was, that was your reaction. That what a great. beautiful
2: Bright. <laughs> I mean, sure, yeah. Jeff, it's, you think it's cold, but it, they were very uh, warm and welcoming to me. <laughs> um, maybe it's a personality thing, but I, I, couldn't, I couldn't wait to get down there. And me and my friend Mark, we went down with these guys we just met and we we're drinking down. By the river. So far, this story is definitely worthy of telling on radio. Oh, no man. doubt about that. Every story we tell is worthy of telling radio. But it hasn't radio. even got to the weird bit yet. Um, <laughs> so we're standing there, we're having some beers, and then all of a sudden we're approached by a, a strange man who's like a maybe a 40-something-year-old guy. That's not that strange. That's probably that's the most normal thing about him. And then he, <laughs> he comes up to us and he started making small talk. Hey, how's it going, guys? And we're like, good. Thank you, sir. How are you going? And that, I mean, still... I'd say not that weird. Well, it's a bit weird that you said,
1: thank you, sir.
2: It <laughs> seems a bit weird, but who
1: am I to judge?
2: Well, I think you've, <laughs> you've, you've shown today that you are the one to judge. Um, and then he said, seemingly out of nowhere, he goes, oh, cool. Anyway, could I interest any of you in coming home to sleep with my wife? <gasps>
0: Oh. This took a turn. I wasn't I did expecting. Not see that well,
2: coming. No, no, none of us saw that coming. We we're like, wait,
0: what? I went from being mildly interested
2: to zing. <laughs> and I think he must have seen it on our faces. Like, like I mean, I was thinking, like, wait, what? Did you just what did <clears throat> you just say? So he repeated, He goes, "Oh, sorry, I was just wondering if if I could interest any of you in, in coming home and sleeping with my wife." Oh, and oh, and wow. we were like, what is going on? Jeez, swinging and, bright. And I think he could tell that we were. A little bit, um, you know, non nonplussed. nonplussed. and and he, I think he saw that maybe we thought everything was a bit, it was a bit weird, and we we're a bit sus on it, right? So he pulled out his wallet, and he opened his wallet, and he goes, "It's totally legit. See, I'm a cop," and he showed us his police what? badge. Get out! And we oh were like, my, "Wait, that's made it more confusing. <laughs> How does, does he... that make it more legitimate? Were did were, 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 were there shrooms involved in this?" From my end, yeah, no, yeah. you're okay. You're not yeah.
0: imagining this.
2: No, I'm not imagining okay. this. Okay, but just I mean, I'd had a few Carlton drafts.
0: Okay,
2: I know they have some pretty full on effects. <laughs> uh, and this is like deliverance or something. Yeah, yeah. It
0: is, isn't it? You can hear the banjo playing
2: because <laughs> we. I mean, but Bright and, is quite a civilized sort of place. If anything, it had the opposite effect. It didn't make me feel calmer about the situation. Like no, he, he what, was what showing what? to us as if it was like. See, it's all fine. But to me, I was like, oh, this makes it seem like it's obviously not an undercover operation, but maybe some sort of overcover operation or yeah. something. It, was, it didn't, I, I was so confused. But everyone was like me going, I don't think I want to do this. Obviously, this is a weird thing. I'm confused by the question. But one guy, the scraggly local guy, he goes, yeah, all right. No. <laughs> sure, I'll be in that. And and they walked off into the night, and I never saw that guy again. Are you
0: serious? Yeah.
2: When you say you never saw that guy, again, I mean, do you I mean left that- town the next day. <laughs>
1: say, do you mean that guy was never
2: seen again? <laughs> no, nah, yeah. I mean, that doesn't sound as fun and dramatic. He's <laughs> probably, you know, went back to business. But anyway, so I then um, I did make me think, like, what what a weird scenario. Like, what what is his wife wife? Like, do you mind popping down the river, <laughs> picking me up a, m- a few out of towners? <laughs> yeah,
0: that's where the lads hang out on it Friday
2: night. Um, I told <laughs> this story some fine specimens of manhood can be found down by the river drinking. Just whoever you can get, <laughs> yeah, like bring back in the AM by the river, drinking a slab. It's like this is, yeah, bottom of the barrel <laughs> stuff. <laughs> it really is bottom feeders. I I told this story on stage uh in bright last year. oh, that's a daring move. I know I just I'm like oh this feels like relevant material
0: you do that?
2: and i didn't I can uh, hear the banjo getting <laughs> louder
0: and faster <laughs> as you talk
2: i didn't th- I didn't think about it till after, but it's a pretty there's not a lot of cops in bright <laughs> and um uh, and there were two police wives in the audience. they came oh, up to me God. after the show, and one of them. I like, and one of them we figured out that it, it was like the timing wasn't right. They'd moved to town since, and I'm sure this guy was a travelling cop. Like you don't do that <laughs> I, in your own, on your own patch.
0: Maybe I feel like maybe the guy wasn't a cop.
2: Right, he just found. Do you a think badge. maybe
0: maybe he just found a badge? Well,
2: I'd never even considered that. I'd always fully <laughs> believed it, but yeah, you're, you're right. It, he probably found a badge. But it, oh, it, so I, it, I, it, I fully believed him though. He did just, you? Yeah, there was some. He looked like a cop.
1: What was the out when these these women came up to you afterwards and said, "Oh, as it happens, I'm the wife heart, of a policeman." What my was heart th-
2: was racing. <laughs> One of them, it, it, she was like, <laughs> "She's like, I wish it was me, but <laughs> she was disappointed, but she wanted to be in the story, but she she was not, unfortunately." Did you
0: have to get up into a disclaimer afterwards and say, to so you know, it's no one's no no current
2: wives." Well, yeah. um, I, I didn't do that, no. But it it really, I you know when you're, you're in a room like that and there's a big, like a weirder reaction to what you're expecting? Yeah. That happened because the whole crowd knew that the cop's wives were there. My so God. So Jesus. It was, but, yeah, it was all fine. I mean, she <laughs> talked to me after and was like, yeah, she was disappointed that it, somehow she was keen to be in the story. Did but
0: no one come up and say, yeah, that's like... Old Freddy does it all the time, or, or no? There like was no sur- one could explain it to you. They any were further. as
2: surprised by it as, as we were on the night. Are you
0: sure this occurred?
2: <laughs> well, <laughs> the way you're talking to me, it's, you're asking about mushrooms. <laughs> why would why would I make this up? Do you want to do that survey again? Now, Sarah? <laughs> <laughs> no, my question is so like. Okay,
1: this is an extraordinary thing to happen. Not what you expect. You're coming back to Bright. You're going to do a bit. Why would you put that story into your show? Like,
2: uh, would you not concerned that the cop himself would be? Yeah. I, I. Well, in my head, I just always assumed he was probably a travelling cop. It was, at a, it was in a holiday I period. I do what a travelling
1: cop is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. is. it it's a personal, so cop on <laughs> a I love the way you're like a travelling cop. I'm like,
2: yeah,
0: those guys.
2: Goes around in a van yeah. solving <laughs> mysteries. Oh, wait, that's scooby too. <laughs> <you do. laughs> no, I mean, like a, a, a cop on holidays. <laughs> even, oh, I
0: literally even thought you meant a tra- <laughs>
2: Travelling Oh, uh, he does. Yeah, he so does. Relieved. Holiday crime solving. <laughs> 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 is the caravan cop. Were none of the
0: were any of the river drinkers there? Yeah, that we were all there. he no. The, in the oh, audience. in the audience. I mean, no, no
2: it. one else. You didn't stay in touch with them after your river drinking. No, that was <laughs> the last time I saw them all. Wonder what happened to the straggly stranger. <laughs> I wish I could remember his name. He was. He was clearly like one of the town characters. <laughs> Another time, I'm just remembering another time a similar guy. I wonder if it was the same guy. After a night at the Alpine, he, he took me and my girlfriend at the time back to his place to show us this board game he'd invented. No. Right, so it's just, I mean, I'm just saying, get down to the Alpine and you never know where the night will take you.